You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. Today's episode is week two of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, featuring my very own spiritual coming-of-age story, exploring my own spiritual journey and crisis of faith from two decades ago. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 26 of the Religion and Fiction podcast with week two of the Religion and Fiction book club. As you may know, I decided to launch into the new year with my own spiritual coming-of-age story called A Rediscovered Faith. It loosely follows my own spiritual journey about 20 years ago. First, reimagining my faith by moving beyond the sort of Christian fundamentalism that I had grown up with and into a more progressive version of the Christian faith, only to come back home again to go to seminary to train to be a pastor and rediscover what Christians have always believed by going backwards in the faith to help me move forward in my own spiritual journey. That is the essence of A Rediscovered Faith, my spiritual coming-of-age story, the very first novel that I actually ever wrote about 10 years ago. And because it's a new year, and everyone is doing the whole new year, new you thing, I thought that I would create some space here on my religion and fiction platform in this podcast to offer a sort of exploration of the questions that I and my protagonist, Peter Daniel Young, had in this story to offer you and others the same opportunity to wrestle with your own deep questions about faith, life, and everything in between, and hopefully find some answers to those deep questions. Today, we're going to tackle chapters 9 through 16, but it's still early enough to jump into the study. So if you are interested, grab the book on most platforms, both in ebook and print format. In the show notes below of this podcast, you'll find a link to my bookstore where you can buy the book directly from me for a nice 50% discount landing it for about the cost of a coffee nowadays, without all the cream and sugar and frou-frou Starbucks stuff. The book club is also meant to lead into a Kickstarter that I'm launching in a few weeks, kickstarting the third and final book in the Faith Reimagined Trilogy, a book I wrote last year. Now that it's 2024, it is last year. But it's a continuation of this story that we're reading now and wraps up Peter's journey with the third book called A Refined Faith. You can get the link below in the show notes to follow along so that when it launches, you'll be ready to wrap up Peter's journey and also find some insight and inspiration for your own journey of faith. 
All right, enough prologue. Let's get into this week's book club session. Just a little bit of recap from last week. The first week of the book club, Peter Daniel Young moved back home to West Michigan to attend Grand River Theological Seminary to train to be a pastor. He returned back to a place he never expected to return and found a whole lot of unexpected tension between his parents, his brother JT, and even the faith that he had begun to reimagine. We'll discuss more of that in this week. Beginning in chapters 9, 10, and 11, which I think we can sort of take together, because these introduced three very important relationships for Peter. First, Isabel Saunders, and then Jake McAllister. Good old Izzy and Jake are two really important relationships for Peter. Two fellow seminarians who walk with him through this next leg of his spiritual journey in different ways. We'll see more as the story progresses how they kind of come alongside him and even kick his butt a bit in riding his spiritual ship in this leg of his spiritual journey. Here, though, they're introduced, and I'd like you to consider people in your own life who have played that important role. Maybe they didn't quite entirely get this journey that you were on, the questions you were asking, the things you were probing about your faith. Maybe they were not even Christians. Maybe they were just deep friendships. And here you were, either exploring faith for the first time, committing to faith for the first time, and there they were on the side, sort of looking in and walking with you through that process, confused and uncertain about the nature of this exploration of yours. Or maybe they were fellow believers who similarly just didn't get what you were wrestling with and struggling with in your faith, in the questions, and even some of the answers that you were beginning to arrive at. Who were those people for you? And how did they sit with you in that own leg of your spiritual journey? How did they support you? How did they question you? And even, like I said before about Izzy and Jake, kick your own sort of spiritual butt a bit to get you either back on track or to just simply encourage you on the path that you were walking to take your faith more seriously or to explore faith more seriously. I know for me, during my own crisis of faith and my own deep exploration about 20 years ago, there were a lot of people who were either very similarly engaged in the same sort of process or others who weren't quite as questioning as I was, but still stood with me in the midst of my questioning and, and not so much doubting, but my probing and my pushing back against the faith that I had been handed and the answers to questions that I had assumed were already settled. These were people from both back in Washington, D.C., a community of young adults who were similarly exploring 
and also friendships in seminary when I was training to be a pastor and kind of brought along all these questions and doubts and my probing and exploration that frustrated some people around me, particularly my professors. And one in particular who Calvin Van Dyke was sort of modeled after. Uh, My dear friend, Mike Whitmer, who is still a seminary pastor at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, where I attended, and now a pastor himself. I'll get to him in just a minute when we probe and explore chapters 10 and 11. But right here, let's just sort of sit with the question that I posed about relationships, those people who were important to you in your exploration, in your own journey of faith. Who were they? How did they impact it? And how can you just sort of sit in appreciation of how they cared for you during this time? How might you take their example and let it inspire you in coming alongside others you might know? who are similarly probing and questioning and exploring their own deep questions of faith, life, and everything in between. As I mentioned, one of the important themes of this book, uh, but especially the series broadly, is the importance of relationships. People who will stand with you in your exploration and journey, but also people who will push back and correct and guide and offer wisdom for that exploration, for that process of probing. And so it's important to kind of take stock, I think, and to appreciate those people who've stood with us while also considering how we might stand with others in their own journey. As I mentioned, Calvin Van Dyke, or in my case, Mike Whitmer, (laughs) played a very special role in my own spiritual journey and spiritual formation. He was a professor who sat with me in my questions, listened to them well, but also pushed back and tirelessly encouraged me to rediscover to go backwards in my faith in order to go forwards in it in my own modern world. We begin to experience some of that initial tension that I felt as I was reimagining the faith and then being told to rediscover it. That tension that I felt is beginning to kind of bubble to the surface here in chapters 10 and 11 in Peter as he goes to class and experiences Systematic Theology 1 and the question that Dr. Van Dyke asks. That, of course, is, what is theology? What is doctrine? What is the point? Why do we study it? Why do we engage it? A deep question, I know, probably one that isn't often engaged with in literature, in your run-of-the-mill reads, But of course, this is more of a spiritual coming-of-age story where deep questions are super important for the narrative as well as our own reading experience. So for yourself, how would you answer those questions? What is the point of theology? What is it even? Well, there are two contrasting points of view. As you can imagine, those 
contrasts come from our two main characters here in the story, from Peter and from Dr. Van Dyke. Peter, of course, says that painting is the point, or maybe repainting, that we all sort of enter into this uh, process of continuing to imagine and reimagine and paint the picture of the Christian story. As we move forward through life and into the future, Van Dyke has a very different perspective. Instead, he says we need to use a different P word, right? Preserve it. We need to, as Jude 3 says in the New Testament, contend for the once for all faith entrusted to God's holy people to struggle for it, to preserve it, to care for that one faith given by Jesus Christ to the church once and for all. He says that's the point of theology, that's the point of doctrine. Now, if you've read and engaged any of my other works, especially the Order of Thaddeus Religious Conspiracy Thriller series, you know that this verse from the book of Jude is super important to me. It's one of my cherished sort of personal verses that guides my own Christian walk and my own Christian vocation in trying to encourage others to preserve, as Dr. Van Dyke says here, but also contend for and fight for and cherish and caretake this once for all faith entrusted to God's holy people. Van Dyke emphasizes this oneness and the singularity to Christianity by reading something from an important early church father, Irenaeus, in his Against Heresies book. I'm not going to read what he wrote because you can read that in the book, but I'd like you to consider sort of that main point that Irenaeus makes as well as Dr. Van Dyke. That there is this sort of singularity to the Christian faith. That there is this one single message of tradition that is the same, that has been handed down through the ages. As he says, wrapping up this uh, section of Against Heresies, just as the sun is the same wherever it shines, so is the preaching of the truth the same everywhere in the world enlightening everyone who wants to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here I'd like you to consider your own relationship with that idea, that there is this one singular expression or understanding of the truth of the Christian faith. Is Jude right that there is this once-for-all faith entrusted to God's holy people by Jesus Christ himself? Is Even Irenaeus write that there is this one faith passed along through the ages. That even though the church is dispersed throughout the world, as he writes, even to the ends of the earth, it has received this common faith from the apostles and their disciples. What do you think about that? Obviously, Peter has an opinion about this, and he speaks up and says, I don't buy it. Of course, Van Dyke probes and pushes back a bit and asks, well, why not? Peter responds, 
This idea that there is one message that is preached across the world and across time, wasn't there a little thing called the Reformation? And in America, how many denominations are there? The idea that there is one version of the Christian faith that's been proclaimed and believed over the past few thousand years seems ridiculous. Of course, Peter makes a good point. There has been these points of tension in the church's history. The Reformation is one of those. That's a prime example. About 1,500 years into the church's existence, of course, there was the split within the particularly Roman Catholic Church that ended up in a uh, Protestant Catholic division. And then through the ages, there have been hundreds of denominations within the Protestant uh, wing of the church pew that has splintered into Lutheranism and Presbyterianism and the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, which is more the worldwide expression of the Episcopal Church. Of course, you've got Baptists. And even within Baptists, you've got Southern Baptists. And I'm part of a general association of regular Baptist uh, church denomination. Then, of course, all the various non-denominational Bible churches that aren't even part of a denominational tradition. What do you do with that? I think that's sort of Peter's point. Van Dyke replies, and he says, of course, there have been these shades of meaning surrounding certain beliefs, uh, primarily the cross and atonement and how the blood of Christ is applied and what happens at the cross. But as his point continues, he says that the church still believes that something happened at the cross, even with all these shades of meanings when it comes to the atonement and how the blood of Christ is sort of applied and what that event means for the world. The church has a belief about the cross. And his encouragement to Peter, as well as these other classmates of his, and what I would humbly suggest would be my own encouragement as the author behind the narrative here, is that uh, what the church needs now, to quote, page 90, is not to reimagine the faith, but to rediscover it. Because let's face it, the history of Christianity is writ large with the consequences of reimagining, stretching all the way back to the early church. Ideas have consequences, as he continues, and Christ has given the church the responsibility of stewarding those ideas that have always been central to the Christian faith. Here I want to stop uh, because Van Dyke will then continue to encourage this very same idea in uh, Peter's own journey. When the two of them go to the Chinese buffet and sit down and break bread and, and have a meal together, what Van Dyke suggests to Peter and what he encourages here is that we as Christians should not be entirely interested in reimagining the faith as these prosurgent protagonists have been, uh, both in the last book and this one here, as well as what I would say are more progressive Christians nowadays. Instead, the encouragement is to rediscover the faith, to recapture and reclaim what the church has always believed about a range of things. What do you think about that? What is your reaction to that encouragement, to that advice? 
I will say uh, from a personal standpoint, when I was going through my own sort of crisis of faith and knee deep in uh, my own wrestling and my own questions and my own exploration of these answers that we've been sitting with so far, I had a very similar reaction to Peter. Of course, this book, uh, A Rediscovered Faith, is a bit of a self-memoiry kind of story, incorporating some of my own experiences in Peter's. I myself pushed back. I reacted to that encouragement, that suggestion that in order to go forward in my faith, I had to go backward. I had some very similar concerns and sort of freaked out in the same way that Peter did in chapter 11, eating with Van Dyke, fearful that I would become the sort of fundamentalist that I had fled uh, and reacted to in my own questioning, my own probing, my own exploring. But of course, Van Dyke says that doesn't have to be the case. Instead, his encouragement is to not become a fundamentalist, but instead to reclaim and to hold on to the fundamentals. On the flip side, he encourages Peter to not become progressive in his faith, but instead to become humorously (laughs) regressive, to uh, instead cling to a regressive Christianity, as he puts it. And he kind of goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, I don't think what you need is to reimagine the Christian faith. What you need is to rediscover the historic Christian faith. So regressive Christianity could be a good way of putting it, a sort of returning back to what the church has always believed. After all, that's what regress means. The act of going back, a returning to what was before. He then goes on to define what that means after Peter kind of pushes back on this whole idea. He says, I mean, returning back to what has always been central to faith in Jesus Christ and see early church, the fundamentals of the faith. And yes, that dreaded, fearful, scary reformation, but only because the reformers themselves were interested in rediscovering the historic Christian faith from the early church after being forgotten for centuries, thanks to corrupt practices and beliefs. Maybe vintage is a better word. The vintage Christian faith seems more your style. That got a smile out of Peter, and that has reflected the own language that I myself have used and that I've come to appreciate in my own spiritual journey, my own walk with Christ, to go vintage, if you will, in uh, believing but also practicing I wonder for yourself uh, what you think of that, Uh, this idea of reclaiming and returning, regressing even. How do you think that might look in our day when it comes to a range of things, from faith to belief to practice, our own understanding of ourselves, our human condition, our human nature, perhaps? It's at this point that Van Dyke introduces another important theme to the story and the series, especially this book, as it will become clear later, farther into the narrative. But that theme is this idea that ideas themselves have consequences. Peter pushes back and wonders, what do you mean by that? Uh, What are you talking about? Ideas have consequences. 
this is something that Van Dyke will encourage Peter in, again, farther along in the story, kind of return back to again. Uh, He mentioned it in his lecture, talking about uh, sort of heresies and the necessity of holding on to the once-for-all faith, because when it comes to innovation, it has never turned out well for the church. I have a background in historical theology, um, having an academic degree, a master of theology in historical theology. And one of the primary uh, insights that I learned in that academic process was that exact point, that ideas have consequences, that when people begin to fiddle with the pillars of Christianity, the church begins to wilt it begins to fall apart. The faith itself begins to fray, and the faith of people in their own lives begin to collapse. What do you think about that idea that, well, ideas themselves have consequences? How we talk about these beliefs within Christianity, how we talk about Christianity itself, has great bearing on the real lives of real people and their real sort of eternal outcomes and destinies in life. Have you witnessed up close and personal the fallout from fiddling with beliefs? What do you think might be the fallout from fiddling with certain aspects of the Christian faith? I'll just sort of leave you with that question here and continue onward because we begin to explore those consequences in the next chapter with chapter 12. Peter meets up with his brother, JT. We hear more about his story, that he's sort of on the outskirts of civilized society, having trouble with his job, having trouble with drugs. And here is JT. He's searching. And he thinks that he has found what he's been looking for in this quest for a new kind of Christianity that Brian McLaughlin has offered him. And here is when the narrative begins to turn a bit. And between this chapter and the next, Peter himself, something inside him begins to turn with regards to this innovative, reimagined faith that he had been sitting with the past few years. He's caught off guard by some of what he's reading when he returns home. And even in the conversations with JT about the Bible, for instance. And it's interesting because he pushes back against his brother in this engagement. And in so doing, pushes back against Brian McLaughlin's uh, new kind of Christianity. He, He is a bit confused about how he should view the Bible and how... Christians themselves should view the Bible, whether or not it's just this collection of perspectives on God, this community library, or if there is this authority behind the book because God himself has given humanity this book to get to know him and his story and even our own story. And when he returns home, there is this confusion that sort of sets in. Who is right Brian or his childhood faith, Prosurgeon's Christianity or the traditional faith. 
ratcheting up the tension here inside Peter uh, when it comes to his faith and his walk with Christ, his journey, this exploration he's been on. Do you find your own self here at all? Uh, Confusion about who is right, these varying perspectives, this tension within the church itself between what seems like these two wings, the left, the right, and you might be caught in the middle. I know I myself have felt that way, wondering alongside Peter, who is right, finding myself in this same bit of tension. Have you been there? What has that been like? Or maybe what is that like for you now? Obviously, for Peter, uh, there's this tension inside him. He doesn't know which way to turn. And he falls asleep and has this dream in which he receives this very clear commanding message of encouragement and exhortation. I've revealed, therefore you can know. What's that? Peter calls out in this dream. Again, he receives this sort of message. I've revealed, therefore you can know. And he takes this as sort of a message from the Lord. This uh, word from God to encourage his own spiritual journey. Giving him insight into how he can know which way to go. And this knowledge is premised on revelation. This very deep uh, vintage concept, uh, belief, doctrine within Christianity that God himself has spoken to us through his word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. This becomes a foundation for Peter moving forward. It was a foundation for me, myself, in my own exploration, my own walk, in my own journey. In fact, this moment that Peter experiences is something that I myself experienced on a run one rainy evening in Washington, D.C., when I was struggling to know which way to go, how to believe, who to listen to, and I felt this same sort of word of encouragement. I've revealed, therefore you can know. This idea that God has revealed to us things about himself and his story, our own story, that was the foundation for me moving forward. It becomes the foundation for Peter moving forward as well. And it's an encouragement for you in your own journey of exploration, your own faith to situate it in this knowledge built upon the revelation of God. This comes into play, especially in the next chapter, when Peter picks up Brian's book and he begins reading, searching out what he has to say, and he stumbles across some of what he says about Jesus. And it really uh, begins to make him question what it is that he has been following and who it is that he's been listening to. Because as it becomes clear, Brian's Jesus is simply a moral example to humanity rather than, as I frame it, the metaphysical son of God. Let me uh, back up. There are these, again, very two very distinct 
definitions of Jesus within the church and throughout history. Either the metaphysical son of God, that Jesus really was given to humanity from God himself. The Virgin Mary being impregnated by the Holy Spirit and uh, filled with the seed of God in order to birth the Son of God, Jesus, who himself really was God. Or on the flip side, a more progressive understanding of Jesus in which he is the moral Son of God, where instead of being actually God and divine, Jesus simply mirrors the character of God. He's sort of this highest representation of the ideal human person where he acts super loving and as I've uh, sort of humorously defined it elsewhere in some of my other books, he's sort of this Gandhi on steroids, right? He's this really great person who images to humanity a, a, a divine nature and the ideal human condition. Now, these are two very different ideas about who Jesus is. And Peter encounters the one, and he begins to sort of freak out about not only the voice he's been listening to, Brian, these persurgent people, but also, again, which way to go. And this sort of changes things for Peter in two ways. One, as he says, you can mess with a lot of things, the Bible, the nature of the church, uh, creation, how, you know, how we were created, whether through an evolutionary process or whatnot. But what you can't do is mess with Jesus <laughs> and him seeing Brian sort of mess with the nature and character of Christ really takes a toll. But it's this realization that his brother is also engaging the same book with this characterization of Christ that he then begins to really question who it is he's been listening to and why he is following this more progressive, presurgent Christianity. He wonders what his brother is thinking as he reads the book. But more importantly, he wonders if it would matter to JT's own spiritual journey. If he realized Brian was arguing Jesus was simply a man who lived like God rather than being God himself. Again, it gets back to that theme, ideas have consequences, especially when it comes to the real lives of real people and their own spiritual journeys. I didn't mention it in the book, uh, but there is this classic question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And it gets to the heart of kind of what I was doing here in these chapters, this one in particular around the character and nature of Jesus. And Jesus asks his disciples something very similar to what Peter is probing and what I'm trying to probe here as well. That's the question regarding, who do you say I am? This question is a question Jesus asks his disciples. It's a question he wonders what other people are saying and how they are answering the question. And I wonder about you yourself as you've engaged this chapter and some of what we've been reading. 
How would you answer it? Who do you say that Jesus is? What does he mean for you and your own spiritual journey? We're going to wrap up with chapters 14, 15, 16 together. And they really get, again, back to that theme of relationships and how people affected Peter's own spiritual journey. Two relationships here that are in focus are Lexi and Pastor Davey Jones. It's interesting because I didn't notice this until I was rereading the material for preparing for the book club here. But both of these two characters in many ways mirror their relationships with the church. You'll explore more of Lexi's story farther into the book and why she sort of turned away from the church, especially her comment in the coffee shop working with Peter, why she thought that the church was jacked up as she described her own opinion about the church, which actually reflects somebody that I knew working at Starbucks while I was in seminary, a young woman who had a very similar opinion about the church, having grown up in the West Michigan version of Christianity and had gotten rather burned by the church. I wonder about your own perspective if you yourself have felt that way maybe not in quite as strong of terms, uh, or maybe even stronger, (laughs) a little more R-rated than the more PG-13 version that I used in the story. How have you felt? Uh, What is your own perspective of the church and your own relationship? Have you been burned? Have you been hurt? Now, Peter certainly sympathizes with the sentiment, but he also hopes for something better. She asks about that hope. Lexi wonders, what do you hope for? And this is his response. He says, I've been on a journey of reimagining the Christian faith for the past year or so. And what I hope is that the church would actually connect to our world for a Christian faith that makes sense in the 21st century. She likes the sound of that. And Lexi asks, So what does that look like on the other side of a reimagined Christian faith, Peter Daniel? Well, as he responds, that's going to have to wait for date number two, I think. (laughs) And they do have that date, and he does explore more of that later. But here, I wonder about your own hope for the church on the other side of maybe being burned or disappointed. Do you share similar hopes and dreams? Do you share a similar sentiment as Peter? What do you hope for when it comes to your own faith? Of course, the other person that we meet is Pastor Dave. First at the church, Fellowship Community Church, which is a reflection of the church I served in for a bit during seminary, Fellowship Covenant Church. And Pastor Dave is sort of loosely based on a very dear mentor of mine, John Fry. He taught me pretty much everything that I know about pastoral ministry. He was and still is a very dear friend. And later we hear more about his own 
story when it comes to the church and his experience as a pastor in the church and being similarly burned as Lexi, but in different ways, given his nature of ministry. First, Peter shows up, though, at the church, and here's a rousing sermon from Mark chapter 4. For some, a, a familiar episode from the story of Jesus when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Pastor Dave uses this as a sort of a springboard to confront people's fears and to redirect their attention to Jesus and his ability to be present with us in the midst of those fears and to be all powerful in facing them with him. And Peter writes a number of fears that he has for his life, his family, his future, his faith. Uh, He breaks the alliteration and adds his past. (laughs) And all of this is sort of wrapped up in where he's at in life. And this, again, this sort of journey he's on uh, of exploration and the tension points in all of this and as it mixes together, it's a great way for him to kind of take stock and to consider his own dependency upon Jesus navigating this treacherous terrain. And it's a good opportunity to pose the question to you in your own exploration, your own uh, journey of life. What do you fear? And how might it look to do what Pastor Dave encourages and exhorts in his sermon? To not fear, but instead have faith in the presence and power of Christ. Of course, farther on in chapter 16, the two of them get together for lunch, and it's an encouraging conversation, uh, both of them sort of reminiscing about their own stories, their own exploration of faith. And for Pastor Dave, he brings up a very painful episode in his ministerial life and how, from what we can gather, he was sort of run out of his church because he refused to be the pastor who would just go along to get along. As he explains, you know, people say they want their pastor to challenge them. He continued, that's crap. Dave drained his coffee and sat staring at its empty bottom. They both fell silent and he continued later, they don't want you to challenge them. They want you to maintain the peace, tend the garden, confirm what they already believe, Don't rock the boat, Pastor. Don't tweak our long-cherished beliefs and never challenge the popes of evangelicalism. He said that last part with an edge of bitterness. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is uh, often where people in ministry like me and others uh, can become jaded with caretaking a flock of parishioners. Because while Calvin Van Dyke does have it right, there is this once for all faith passed along through the history of the church to God's holy people to caretake and to preserve and to fight for as Jude 3 exhorts. We also need to acknowledge that we're still learning 
uh, we're still discovering and we're still going deeper into the heart of God and deeper in our understanding of who he is, his story, what it means for the world and for us as individuals. That's as true of pastors as it is of parishioners. And uh, there needs to be a bit of grace for us folk who are in this vocation of ministry as much as we're encouraged to preserve that faith. I wonder at this point, as we end the week, if you yourself could sympathize with Pastor Dave. The points of tension that arise from either being involved at some level in ministry, whether it's leading a small group or uh, leading a youth group or a Sunday's group for adults, or maybe even a minister yourself, somebody who has been involved in vocational ministry, or as, again, a lay minister leading at some level in the church. Where have you seen points of tension arise as you've changed in what you believe and what you are discovering in your own exploration? This theme of the tension that is created in the midst of relationships, in the midst of ministry, in the midst of community, is an ongoing theme of this story. And it's, I think, an important one to keep in mind because the journey of faith is a personal one. It often creates tension between parents and their children, between friendships, uh, between fellow brothers and sisters in Christ— and as I've discovered, in the midst of ministry as well. My hope is that the next couple of weeks, as we continue this book club and this exploration of Peter Daniel Young's story, you will find some encouragement and some exhortation and some insight and inspiration for your own journey to help you navigate those points of tension and particularly the relationships that are near and dear and important to you and your own life. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast and joining the Religion and Fiction book club exploring week two of A Rediscovered Faith. Next week, we'll dive farther into the story with chapters 17 through 24, when tragedy strikes and Peter is confronted with crucial questions, all the while navigating his own deep questions about faith, life, and everything in between. Happy New Year and blessings on your 2024. Grace and peace to you and happy reading.